genuinely thrilled that you are here this morning. Uh, very special day for us. We celebrate Jesus all the time, uh, but there's something kind of unique about Easter and just knowing that people around the world are uh, memorializing this day and remembering uh, what we remember today, which of course is the, the first time the Easter bunny emerged from a hole in the ground and saw his own shadow or something and then started coloring eggs. But that's, I'm not sure how all of that got started. That's a kind of a fascinating connection there. I, I guess on a day like today, a beautiful spring day like today, we can kind of understand where springtime symbols would, would come into all of it. But uh, the Easter bunny, um, the Easter bunny, by the way, is terrifying. If you've uh, encountered the Easter, I'm still, I'm still afraid of the Easter bunny to this day. I uh, do not like to encounter the Easter bunny. But uh, somewhere in the mix, somewhere in the mix about this holiday, and all the secular celebrations, there is this story, this background story, about uh, a guy who rose from the grave. After three days in the tomb, uh, he was risen. And I realize that for some people, that story is less plausible in, in a way than a six-foot bunny running around laying Easter eggs in your yard. Uh, we kind of have a, 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 a problem with that. Most of our stories about dead people coming back are not good stories. They're kind of scary stories. I know uh, we all have that friend who wants to be spring-loaded in their coffin when they die. So, yeah, I know Moretta's one of them that wants to be spring-loaded so that halfway through the service they just sit up and we all gasp, right? Because in our experience, people coming back after being dead for a few days is, is not that great of a thing. It's, it's a little scary. It's a little intimidating. It's... It's not normal, and it's not, uh, not particularly believable. It's not a plausible story. And so somehow a bunny that comes around every year and hides eggs in your yard is a more plausible, more believable tale. But around here, that particular story, the story of a man who was in the grave for three days and came back to life, is a pretty big deal. The resurrection is the central tenet of the Christian faith. Everything that we believe actually hinges on this event, on this moment. And yet for many people, it's a bridge too far. We can, we can receive Jesus as, as a wise teacher. We can appreciate the, the life that he lived and the, and the things that he brought to bear and the, the stuff that he talked about. When we start talking about those miracles, you know, the healing miracles and the walking on water, and man, come on, coming back from the dead after three days. For some people, that's, that's just e it's too easy to dismiss as fanciful storytelling. It's, it's exaggeration. It's all the things that people later wrote into the story to make Jesus seem uh, bigger than life. But the reality, of course, is that if you wanted to fabricate a new religion, this would be an incredibly bad idea. Why would you hinge your entire faith on this story about a guy coming back from the dead? And yet that is exactly what the witnesses to Jesus' life believed and taught. Now, we got to be honest. 
this doctrine was questioned even from early on. Those who didn't witness it had, had a hard time believing it from the very beginning. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, and starting with verse 13, he says, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did, he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now, Paul's not very sly here. He sort of lays all of his cards out on the table. And he essentially says, look, if this part of our faith isn't true, then we're all kind of pathetic. We've put our hope in something that simply can't deliver any hope. It's almost like he's saying to the enemies of the gospel, look, if you want to tear this apart, you don't need the evolution-creation debate. All you got to do is put holes in this idea that Jesus rose from the grave. But what if it's true? The resurrection of Jesus Christ is more than just a tenet of the Christian faith. It is the key to the Christian faith. It's where everything else comes from. It is the plot of the story. It is the end game. This is what makes it all work. This is what makes it all make sense. And so Paul continues in verse 20. He says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, when he comes, those who belong to him. So Paul essentially says, this goes all the way back to the beginning of the story. It goes all the way back to Adam. Because Adam is the one who essentially establishes the human condition. From that story forward, everything's broken. And so... Uh, and you, you remember that story, right? Adam and Eve reach up and they have, have this fruit from the tree, the one thing that God has told them they can't do. And immediately they begin to experience shame. Notice that they're naked. I'm not sure how they didn't notice that before, but suddenly it becomes an issue. And they try to hide from God. This is the human condition. We live with our guilt. We live with shame, and we find ourselves trying to hide all of that from God, which is pointless. And that's been the human condition through all of that human history until this point. Because the end game of Christianity is a life that is beyond self, beyond shame, and beyond death. I don't, I don't just mean... 
after this life. I'm not just talking about the sort of uh, traditional view that we have of, of at some point being rescued from this world and floating off to heaven and then spending eternity on a cloud playing harps. I'm talking about a resurrection life we already can belong to. We belong to a different life, a life that operates by a completely different set of assumptions. We understand that this navel-gazing, this self-centeredness that we all get caught up in is actually not doing us any good. It's not delivering to us the things that we want it to deliver. And so selfishness and sin, we have learned, are self-destructive. The harder we pursue the things that we want for ourselves, the less likely we are to attain the things that we actually need. And our life, the life that was intended for us, is destroyed by it. Our identity is destroyed by it. Our relationships with others are destroyed by it. Our relationship with God is destroyed by it. And of course, ultimately, it all leads to death. But we believe... As people of the resurrection, we believe that real life is found in dying to self. We believe that real freedom in life is found in real surrender to Jesus Christ, in becoming captive to him. And yet in order to access that real life, the first thing we needed was a way out, a way to deal with the real sin that has already permeated and poisoned life. The guilt that we have known and the shame that we have because of it. And with that guilt and that shame, it becomes impossible for us to do anything except live a life that is completely motivated by fear. So we are walking through this life driven, we think by so many noble things, but really driven primarily by fear. The things that we're afraid will happen to us. The things that we're afraid of encountering. The things that we're afraid of not getting. Things that we're afraid God won't provide for us when we need him to provide them. We live this life driven by fear. And we need a way back. We need a way out. We need to be freed of the guilt and freed of the shame so that we can be freed of the fear. And Jesus describes that way. In Mark chapter 8, verse 34, he says, And he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. And so on this Easter morning. Here's, here's the core message that I, I want you to leave here with today. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is a prescriptive journey. It's not just a story about Jesus. It's a story about a journey that Jesus wants us to take with him. It is prescriptive. It is the way. It is how we get beyond this life 
beyond our guilt and beyond our shame, beyond our sin and beyond death, find resurrection life. We are often misled, even in the church, by the rush to try to acquire some fire insurance. We just want that get-out-of-jail-free card so that when, when the end comes, we can be before the throne, we could be before the gates, we could be before judgment, and we'll get through somehow by the skin of our teeth. We'll make it. We won't, we won't be sent to the bad place. We're so anxious sometimes to get that fire insurance that we miss the fact that this is not simply about not going to hell. This is about the resurrection life that we get to claim. It's a new life. It's a life set free of shame and fear and death, and this is the path. Jesus says, come with me. Come with me. It's not to earn our salvation, mind you. We don't have to we don't have to endure the things that Jesus endured as some test because it's already been done for us. But this is to take hold of resurrection life, to embrace it, to, to begin living it right now, right here. And there's basically three steps that Jesus gives us. And the first one, he says, you know, you just put this shame and put this doubt behind you. Be done with that. And I don't mean, you know, when we say that, I think we think of sometimes how the world thinks about putting shame behind you. Because the world basically says, um, I don't like feeling shame, and so I've decided I'm just not going to feel it anymore. You know, I'm not, gonna, not, not changing anything, not changing my guilt, not changing my behavior. I just don't want to deal with the shame anymore. And so I, I don't do shame, and I don't do guilt anymore. Kind of a worldly solution. And then we go a little bit further than that, and we sort of begin to reshape what is good and what is evil, and we start to cast virtue as something that's unreasonable to expect of anybody, and we start to cast shameful things as if they were virtuous. Now, now there's a number of problems with, with this approach. First of all, assuming the power to redefine righteousness is incredibly arrogant, and it's idolatrous. And it's basically us doing what Adam and Eve did in the garden, which is I'll, I'll take this power from God, the power to define what's good and what is bad. I'll decide for myself. Claiming that we have nothing to repent is simply delusional. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory. There's none of us that isn't guilty. And feeling no shame, feeling, feeling no shame or guilt for things that we're actually guilty of is, is pathological. Like, we don't even want to meet those people, right, who do evil things and then feel no shame for it. And yet, that is, the, that is the pathway that we're, we're trying to use to get out of feeling shame anymore? Jesus has this whole different approach. He says, well, deny yourself. Repent of that life. Repent of your past. 
Stop trying to play God. You're not any good at it. Let God be God. And just like him, before these events that we commemorate this past week, Jesus in the garden and he says, not my will, but yours. This is the pathway. You want to get what you really want and what you really need out of life? First step is get you out of the way and put God's will ahead of your own. Even Jesus says it. Not my will, but yours. And then he says, face your own mortality. I know uh, a lot of the people that were invited to join us this week for Easter service said something to the effect of, if I go into that building, it will collapse on top of me. A lightning will strike. I will, I will be dead on the spot. Some, some of you who made it here this morning might have had that thought pass through your mind. That's okay. There's a lot of us who are members here who are wondering why the building hasn't collapsed on us yet. Sin has created the ultimate human failure, which is death. And at some level, we know that judgment's coming. We ignore it. We pretend it isn't. Jesus says, face it. And when we face it, we find out, much to our surprise sometimes, that God is not hateful and angry and just waiting to to inflict punishment upon us, but God is uh, not anxious to condemn. He is welcoming. He is loving. He is forgiving. So we face this death in order to encounter real life. It's fascinating, isn't it, what Jesus says to his followers? Take up your cross. This is Remember, this is before the crucifixion. This is before any of those events took place. Jesus has been trying to tell his followers that he's going to be arrested, he's going to be tortured, and he's going to be put to death. And every time he brings it up, they're like, oh, no, 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 no. Even has a confrontation with Peter about it. Tells Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're thinking like a man. Thinking like a man and not, not like, like God. These things haven't happened yet. Jesus hasn't carried his cross. Jesus hasn't faced his death yet. And he says, step two of the journey is you're going to take up your cross. They must have been wondering, what on earth are you talking about? What does that even mean? It means we face the death and the judgment that we have coming. We deal with it directly. We don't run from it. We don't pretend that it doesn't exist. We take up our cross. Cross, for us, in the resurrection life, has lost its penalty. The penalty's already been paid. It's already been taken away. And so death doesn't have a sting anymore. And now, when I focus on death, when I face my death, I can ask myself, what is life? In fact, facing death in Christ allows me to really answer the question, what is it that I would do with my life if I knew my death was coming? 
And so much of our time, so much of our life, so much of our existence is spent doing things that when we die, they're not going to matter anymore. Knowing that we have a life to turn to, perhaps we could choose a more fruitful path. Finally, Jesus says, do what love does. Follow me, Jesus says. Follow me. Life in Christ is not academic. It's not theoretical. There's not something that we do on paper or that we we just uh, sign off on. We are called to live for love rather than to live for fear. That's 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 the story of the crucifixion and resurrection. Why do all these things happen? Well, you know, we we there's a lot of great theology around that. And we could talk about divine justice and and all those great themes that, that theologians like to talk about. But but ultimately when it all comes down to it, why did Jesus go to the cross? Why did he die for our sins? That's what love does. Love sacrifices itself. Love makes the sacrifice play. Our journey is so incredibly imperfect. And even after we've given ourselves to Christ, we're constantly in the business of, you know, trying to take it back. Trying to take back the things that we we surrendered yesterday. We kind of want them back today, Jesus. It's a constant battle. We're always being called back into that fear and into that shame and into that guilt where the enemy wants us to be. But look, the way is set. Jesus chooses God's will, God the Father, over his own will. He faces his own death with all of our guilt in tow, and he takes the journey. Because he takes the journey, God raises him from the dead on the third day, having defeated sin and death. This is why we here practice and champion a believer's baptism. Because the symbology is the same. A believer's baptism is a death, a burial, and a resurrection. Death, we deny ourselves. We deny our old life. We deny the life that we're leaving behind. We're buried. We face that death. We die to ourselves. We take up our cross. And we come up out of the water participants in the resurrection life. Eternity starts today because Jesus said, follow me. This morning we have some young people who are prepared to take that journey. Here's what they need to know. We share in Christ's journey so that we can share in his destination. We are people who live by a completely different set of assumptions, a different king, a different kingdom. And we do that now, not someday, not after judgment, not after death, not, not, not in the afterlife. But from this moment forward, each and every morning, we live for a different kingdom. 
one day, one day, we will share in the resurrection of the body because we have known Christ in his death and his suffering. We have shared in the life that he has already begun so we will share in his resurrection. Today, we have the opportunity to share in his resurrection life. As we sing our song this morning, and I invite those young people who are prepared to take that journey with Christ this morning to come forward.